Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with TV and film director, writer and producer Amy Coop. Before we get into it, I'd just like to play you a bit of this. Listening, hear me, I may not pass this way again. Begin at the beginning, you were here to pass the time. The sound of a sleeping city made you feel alive. A thousand hearts and caring, afraid to meet you right. A single point of reference that you were trying to find, though it was all you had, you were still sad. You never will look back. You never had to hide. That was a sample of my new song, Listen In, which was released on the 1st of August. You can get access to a free download of the song by joining my mailing list. I'm also running an ultimate mixtape challenge. Create a listen-in playlist with my new song Listen In as the first track on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube or wherever you listen to your music. Send me a link or a photo of your playlist and I'll share it. There's a prize for the mixtape I think has the best songs. There's details of all of that on my website, robertlaymusic.co.uk, where you will also find information about this podcast and the previous guests I've spoken to. I've been getting some great feedback about the podcast and it's fantastic to hear from you. It'd mean a lot to me if you could subscribe, rate and review it on your preferred podcast provider as doing that encourages the algorithms to push it to more people. It's also very handy when I'm talking to potential future guests as it shows that people are listening. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Amy Coop. Hi Amy, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm pretty good actually. Um I should have been on honeymoon <laughs> these two oh, weeks. Oh god! So, uh, but actually, that's a lot worse, isn't it? So, as I, you know, I've got a um, an excursion to the lounge planned later, and maybe later this week we'll have a walk around Sainsbury's. So it's all the all the See, romantic that, stuff. That's romantic. I mean, what you know, what what woman wouldn't be impressed with a walk <laughs> around and a visit to the lounge when you could be on a beach somewhere? That's you know, it. With cocktails. That's it. But um, no, it's all good. How are things for you? How how is stuff work wise during this period? So anyone anyone listening in, we're week I don't know, hundred and seven of the lockdown. No, eleven isn't say. it of the the lockdown? Dear so 39. so filming and TV stuff has has been paused across the board pretty yeah. much, hasn't it? I mean, basically, um, relatively early on into into this particular um, situation, all film and TV production was was put on hiatus, um, and I was three days into prep on a block of Hollyoaks for Channel Four and Line Pictures, um, <clears throat> and so was uh, was just very very early stages on that. And then it was I just finished a block as well, so I'd had about ten days off, and it was very apparent, obviously, as everything was unfolding, that we were going to get shut down. I mean, it was, you know, I don't think it came as a surprise to anyone. I think it was just a question of when. Um, 
the early stage of prep, I was able to work from home anyway, so it, so it didn't really make any difference in the immediate kind of a start of that. And then we all got shut down and are still shut down. Um, and that's been true across the board from everything from continuing drama all the way up to major studio um, features. Um, and that's kind of been the, the, the status quo ever since. I mean, there's an awful lot of discussion in the industry with between a lot of very um, experienced people and a lot of very knowledgeable people about how to get the industry working again. And I think this is true of across all industries, but obviously from a film and TV perspective, it's pertinent to, to what we do. And um, there's a lot of discussion and a lot of debate about how to do that safely um, and responsibly. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of good suggestions have come forward. I think one of the, the challenges is somebody has to be the guinea pig. Mm. Somebody has to go first. Uh, continuing drama or soaps are starting to to make moves to back to production at the moment. Um, in fact, today I know Emma Dale have gone back to work, certainly in prep. I don't know when they're going to start shooting, but knowing their prep kind of times, they'll probably be shooting within a, within a few weeks. Um, but because of the nature of, of how those kind of productions are set up, they're called precinct um, shoots. And a precinct shoot is effectively one which is entirely contained within a, um, a pre-existing studio space. So, for example, Emmerdale or Hollyoaks or, or EastEnders or Coronation Street can shoot entirely within their own environment without having to go outside. Um, they work with small crews anyway. They use galleries, so people are separated anyway. So uh, there are lots of ways in which they were going to find it less troublesome to go back to work. But the, the big issue is still how do you safely manage um, cast? Mm. Because they, they, you know, social distancing and everything else is fine and manageable just about on the crew side of things. But how do you do it with cast, with actors who are supposed to be um, just within, you know, within a short distance of each other um or you know and particularly with the soaps because the soaps are all people snogging and punching each other and you know and hugging and fighting and that's that kind of there's an awful lot of that in soaps and that's what people want they want the melodramatic they want the heightened drama and it's very difficult to do that when everybody's two meters away um so it's going to be interesting to see how the scripts have changed and how the storylining has changed and been updated to take this into account and um and I think as as um, you know, as the smaller productions go back, they will find things that work. They'll find things that don't, and then the bigger productions will just throw money at the problem to try and fix it. So uh, I don't imagine anything any certainly in this country, uh, anything big is going to start up shooting much before August. Mm. Uh, and I think August September people are talking about really is, is the kind of the earliest when the industry will start to get back to work, but. Who knows? That's that's exactly the point, isn't it? It is who knows. Like you can sort of speculate a little bit, but things seem to be moving so quickly at the moment. It's it's interesting mm. to think, as you say, how scripts and and just the style of some of these programs might change for a while as well. It's you know because it's not unusual, is it, where soaps have had episodes with a character or a character or two? Yeah. Whether we get some more of those kinds of things, which have always been quite popular haven't they but as an unusual thing that a soap doesn't normally do they stand out for being a bit bit weird so whether they're yeah be absolutely more of that. but i think i mean i think there's gonna to have to be they're gonna to have to box clever in terms of how they're how they're writing stories and writing scripts and telling stories um 
you get bottle episodes, as they're called, which are um, like a ship in a bottle. Basically, the entire story is very, very self-contained. And as you say, it could be just two or three characters in a room mm. um, for whatever reason. And and they're obviously, that's fine, as and when they're kind of dotted through a, a whole series of episodes. But when that becomes the norm, it can become very stale very quickly. And it's just trying to kind of find ways of of telling the stories. And the other thing as well is how much of this current situation the, the coronavirus um fallout do you do you encompass into your storytelling do you mm. you know because soaps are, are theoretically a reflection an amplified reflection of real life they're kind of heightened um you can't ignore it clearly um storylines for soaps are, are, are established months and years in advance so they can't just kind of go oh no we're just gonna we're just gonna pick up where we left off and ignore that because that doesn't work. But I don't think anybody particularly wants to go. And having spent three months in lockdown, I don't think anyone wants to watch soaps that are just about people in lockdown. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see how they um, how they square that circle. And how um, far ahead are, are soaps filmed then? They vary. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, the, the ones that I have direct experience of, which is Doctors for the BBC and Hollyoaks for Channel 4, are about two to three months in advance, give or take. I mean, I um, it kind of depends. And obviously they've they've uh, rationed the broadcast of episodes. Right. So for Hollyoaks, for example, um, I shot a block of Hollyoaks in January, February, and we finished at the beginning of March. Um, and those went out. They were originally slated, I think, to go out beginning of May. And I think, no, the end of April. And I think they went out um, mid-May in the end because they, they slowed everything down. Because as in a normal world, it goes out five episodes a week. So you shoot a block of five episodes. So each director shoots a week of episodes right, at a time. Um, but then my episodes were spread over three weeks because it was like two one week, two the next week, and one the follow the week after that because they were rationing them. So they're kind of getting to the stage now where they're just about to run out of new episodes. And I know the other soaps are pretty much in the same boat. Um, they've all been, you know, doing other things. I mean, yeah, um, Emma Dale shot a couple of special lockdown episodes, um, which were two people standing in a room eight feet away from each other, mm. um, with a in shot on a, with a crew of two people. Um, and uh, Hollyoaks have been showing classic episodes, and I don't really watch EastEnders and Corrie, so I don't know what, if anything, they've been doing um, in terms of any interesting or original content they've been creating around this issue. Mm. But uh, but everybody's just rationed stuff to kind of eke it out for as long as possible. But yeah, they're they're all going to run out around sometime around now, I think. And I guess the other side of that is if they start to film in the next couple of months for stuff that gets shown two or three months later, as you say, the situation in the real world might be quite different to the situation they were filming in. So it's it's knowing how much of the social distancing or whatever to reflect it's tricky. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to, you, you even if you're kind of largely ignoring it, you have to at least acknowledge it. Yeah. Um, because I think it's, you can't have a show which is which is rooted in reality, which isn't therefore rooted in reality it doesn't make any sense so it's going to be interesting i think and um and as you say you know roughly speaking from the point where where a director starts prep on one of these things i mean hollyoaks is a good example because it takes about two months 
for a director from the day you start prep till the day you walk away after editing. It's about two months work to produce five episodes, to produce one week's worth of um, content. And so at any given point, there's four or sometimes five different units shooting concurrently. Mm. Um, so at various different stages during, in, their, in their schedule. And then obviously there's there's a period of post-production and various other things they have to do for compliance. So even if you rush that, um, you know, they if people are going to prep today, even rushed, we're talking about two to three months before we start seeing the fruits of that, um, that labour. Um, and obviously the broadcasters are keen to get stuff back on air and to get original content back. Now, being in the, the sort of pause situation with those things then, has that allowed a time for you to look at some other projects um, and do things that, were on the back burner or perhaps you wouldn't have been able to think about otherwise. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I don't, I think a lot of people suffered with the same problem is nobody, nobody felt particularly creative mm. for a while just because it was such a strange situation to be in. And I think there was so much else going on. I think it was difficult. Certainly it was difficult for me to just go, okay, that's fine. I'm just going to, I'm going to magically put my creative head on and do all of this stuff. So, um, for the first few weeks, I kind of struggled to, to just, you know, to, I, I fell into a routine, just a, you know, a staying at home routine, you know, and, and doing stuff, which is fine. And there's nothing wrong with that, but as a creative person and as something of a workaholic, I found it quite frustrating. And so it was only really after about six weeks or so that I really started to kind of feel that my creative head was in the right place to actually start doing something. And there's various projects that that have been kind of ongoing for a while, and uh, and having the opportunity to have some space to do some writing um, has been really good. So yeah, so there's various things which um, which have kind of come about. It's enabled me to go back and look at projects which had kind of stalled for one reason or another, largely for a lack of time and opportunity. So no, it's been in some respect, it's been really good. And and there's been a couple of really good projects which have come out of the last month, mm-hmm. just in terms of. I don't usually have the opportunity to spend days on end pouring over something because I work all the time. Um, So it has been, yeah, in in some respects it's been, uh, I hesitate to use the word word blessing (laughs) Mm -hmm. because it isn't obviously, but um, I think it's, I've I've been quite lucky in that I've been able to to use the time productively, certainly for the last few weeks. Mm. Yeah, I've spoken with loads of people for this, obviously, and, and my own experiences, it's such a mix, isn't it? There's times when you, everything seems quite bleak and there's a lot of things to worry about personally and then with everyone you know and the society in general and the world. But then there are these sort of silver linings where people are spending time with their kids and mm. time at home and just the slower pace of life as well, which I don't know. For, for me, there's been quite an interesting thing to sort of experience what it's like to have weeks where you haven't got massive schedules to meet and you're not on the road rushing around mm. and all the other things that we just take for granted as being a part of life um but yeah it's a it's such a weird existential headspace at a lot of the time isn't it it's um it is and i think one of the things where because i live out in the countryside um so if you actually you know step outside the door and walk around the village nothing is really that different yeah from how it normally is because it's not a it's not a hustle and bustle kind of place it's not a you know particularly busy part of the world um so yeah it doesn't it doesn't day-to-day life with the exception of obviously you know we don't go to work can't go out and socialize can't do any of those other things Mm -hmm. just the the basic day-to-day life around here isn't that different 
So, which in some respects is quite nice because it doesn't feel as weird. And I have huge sympathy for people who are in city centres without the ability to go out and use green space and um, uh, are just cooped up on the 15th floor of a tower block. I can't imagine um, how difficult that must be. And then we're really lucky that, that we live in the countryside and can step out of our front door and, you know, three minutes later be, you know, in a field. Um, and so that's, in, you know, in some respects, that's been that's been really nice. Um, I wonder if you could give us a bit of a kind of history of your your um, work as a director and a writer then up until this point and how you've got to the situation that you're in at the moment. I've had a very um, diverse career, I think is the best way of putting it. Um, I studied originally when I was, I, I used to act, I used to do youth theatre and all those kind of things when I was a kid and did that for years and years and years and loved it and um, studied at college and had this kind of great ambition to act um, because I always felt it was a great, you know, creative release for me. I mean, creativity has always been a, a great um, thing for me in terms of just getting lost in it. And I discovered it when I was about 10 or 11 and it's never left me. Um, what did leave me when I was about 20 or so was the notion that I could ever make a living as an actor um, because uh, I just wasn't very good. And, um, you know, I was never going to, I was looking at people around me who were in a very kind of, you know, basic way, were much better positioned to have a successful career in the performing arts than I was. Um, and you look at them and think, okay, they're really struggling and they're finding it really difficult. So what hope have I got? And I'd started directing at college. Um, and I thought, okay, this, no, this is something that I really like and I really enjoy. Um, so, so started to kind of go down that path, but I didn't really start in the industry properly until I was 25. Um, I did the usual thing of, I went to the States to do, to teach at summer camp and I worked in bars in London and did all of that kind of stuff, just bumming around basically. Um, and, uh, and it was fine. It was good fun because I didn't do university. So I kind of needed to get that out of my system. And then I started, uh, and I knew I wanted to work in film because, because theatre again is very difficult to make a living. Mm. in theatre um and th the way that my brain works and the way that i see stories just is very very difficult to recreate on a stage um so i kind of thought okay well if i can't do it on the stage then i'll do it with a camera um so i started writing shorts and other things when i was i think my first short film was when i was about 23 24 um thereabouts and um we begged and borrowed kit and you know film stock and we shot it on 16 mil and uh put together a tiny crew and we you know this was back in the day when you could get permission to shoot in london incredibly easily and you could park anywhere and you know we mm. went up and shot on sundays and just you know um and we shot all over the place around westminster where you'd just be arrested and moved on now um even though strictly speaking it's still perfectly legal um so did that and then started in the industry as a uh, working for one of the camera companies in the first instance, because it was a great way of learning about camera and lenses and, and all of the kit that goes with that. And then wrote an awful lot of letters to production managers and productions that were starting up and was lucky enough to get a job as a production runner on a film called Gangster Number One, which was a film for production based at Elstree, no, Ealing Studios at first. And production running is effectively making coffee, doing photocopying and ordering stationery um, and just generally doing whatever else needs to be done as the dog's body in the office. But it's a great way of, you know, you're reading scripts all the time and you're kind of, you know, you're overhearing an awful lot of 
the way that a production works and you're right in the middle of it. So it was a great learning curve and met some really, really good people. And then as tends to happen with the industry, you meet people in one production and everybody gets, you know, finishes at the same time. So they'll go, oh, what are you doing? And what are you going on for? Oh, this production starting, that production starting. So you start to kind of, you know, hear what's going on on the grapevine. And you you find the people who like you and who you like working with, and they go, "Oh, I'm going on to this. Do you want to come on to this?" Or so and so. And so then, for the twenty years after that, have worked as an assistant director, so a runner, then a third assistant, then a second assistant, then a first assistant, and then back to second ading. After I came back, um, I took a five year break to go and direct commercials. But um, back in two thousand and one, I started up a production company. Um, because I thought, okay, the ADing is great and that's fine and I really enjoy it, but it's not the end goal for me. Um, the end goal was always writing and directing. So I thought I'll just start up a little production company to to ostensibly to write and direct some short films and do some bits and pieces like that. Um, and so started up my company, Angelic Films. And then for three years, certainly didn't direct anything. I was just producing for other directors. Which was great because, again, it was, you know, people would come to me with a script or with a project and we'd put it together. And it was, again, a great way of learning. The best way of learning to make films is to make films. It's that simple. Mm. Um, and you have to be willing to kind of fail as well. You have to be willing to make a film and go, oh, you know, that didn't really work, did it? Um, which is which is fine when you're making a short film for next to no money. Because um, the first time you make a mistake, isn't you don't want to do that when you're on set. And it's incredibly expensive and important and there are people relying on you. Um so then, yeah, and as tends to happen with shorts, you do some shorts and people go, oh, these are good. Do you want to do these music videos? And you go, yeah. And then you do some music videos and they go, oh, this is cool. I really like that. Do you want to do a commercial? And you just kind of build up that way. So then that ran alongside my ADing career for 10 years or so. And um, to the point where when my daughter was born, um, I kind of stopped ADing because, you know, if you go off on a production for 10, 11 weeks, 16 hours a day, six days a week, that's not really compatible when you've got kids. Um, but was lucky that uh, I could just shoot commercials and brand films and, you know, corporate documentaries and all of those other bits and pieces. And the and, and Angelic had got to the stage where it was a self-sufficient production company. And it gave me a huge amount of flexibility to be able to write more. So I then, having made one short film in 2005, um, which is my second, my first proper short, I would call it, but it was my second short as a director. Um, between 2010 and 2015, I made about six or seven because I had the flexibility because I was doing commercials and short form work. So I didn't have to commit to 10, 11, 12 weeks at a time. And that was great because it meant I could, I could experiment and I could try things out and I could write stuff and just throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see what stuck. Um, and some of the things, you know, went incredibly well and some of the things remained as scripts in a folder um and being an ad on set is a brilliant way of learning because ad's are by their very nature right in the center of the whole production um so you get the opportunity to work with and learn from incredible directors producers camera people you know costume designers crew just everything and you get to kind of go okay cool that's how that works and that's a really good idea and i really like how you did that because, you know, it's just all going on around you. So, uh, and I was lucky that I worked on some incredible films. Um, but yeah, I've worked on some some really, really great projects with really interesting filmmakers. And yeah, you just, you know, you just learn and then you think, oh, that's quite cool. And then you take that away and you adapt that to something you're doing and you try it out and see how it works and see if it fits your own personal way of storytelling. Mm. 
but I think you you develop as a storyteller and you develop as a filmmaker. So each thing certainly that I do now where I have control, and I think that's a really important point because you don't always have control. Where I have control is I can I can see a really really um, defined curve across my work over the last ten years where it has become better, more sophisticated, more intelligent, nuanced filmmaking than perhaps it was when I first started. Is the experience as an AD or whatever the same, whether the film is bad? And is the learning experience equally good, if you see what I mean? So do you learn as much from being on the bad films as you do from being on the good ones? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the experience isn't as good because if you're on an awful, awful film with awful people, it's a horrendous place to be. Um, Because one of the, you know, ADing for all its upsides that also has downsides one of which is the crew think your production and production think your crew so you get shouted out by everybody okay um which is a bit you know it's it's a bit of a fool's errand but um and there are you know the, one of the one of the things about working in film and tv is um the hours are very long and often you're away from home and if you're with friends and people you like and respect and you're enjoying that process, then it's great. And it's, you know, the, you, you don't notice the fact you're doing 40 what you do, but you don't really, you know, doing 14 hour days is fine if you are, if you feel valued and you're enjoying work. If you're doing 14 hour days and it's just an absolute slog mm. and it's just fighting all the time and you feel like you're, you know, it's, it's just a horrendous, horrendous environment to be in, then no, it's not a nice environment. It's not a nice place to be. But you still learn stuff from that. One of the things you learn is what you say yes to. You know, I think there's, when, you, when you're starting in your career, you just say yes to everything because you think you're never going to be offered another job. Mm-hmm. So you just keep saying yes. And I think the benefit of experience and the benefit of age is you're able, you, can, you can take a step back from things and go, do you know what? No, I don't fancy that. You know, I'm not I'm not interested in doing I've done that kind of film or I've done that kind of thing or I've been, you know, and spent six weeks in the desert. You know, do I want to go and do that again? And if you're fortunate and you've you know, you've built up a reputation, you can do that because, you know, you turn one job down and chances are another job will come up in its place. Um, So, yeah, so I think you learn from every experience. And um, if you're lucky, you get more good experiences than bad. Um, but even the good experiences, I mean, one of one of my favorite things that I've ever worked on was I was a runner on um, the first Bridget Jones film, which was brilliant. And, you know, the cast were absolutely lovely and the vast majority of the crew were absolutely lovely. But it wasn't a pro- it wasn't a production that was was completely without its problems, um, which I won't go into in any detail. But it wasn't, you know, a completely untroubled production um for various reasons so i i have incredibly fond memories of it but i also remember days when it was horrific Mm. i mean it was you know there were people just in tears for one reason or another mostly due to the behavior of a couple of individuals um and so yeah so nothing you know there's nothing's ever perfect and nothing's ever completely awful um and you just have to you know you have to be dispassionate you have to be able to stand back and go okay what am i going to take from this Mm. What am I going to take from this personally? What am I going to take from this professionally? Um, who are the people I'm going to take from this? I mean, I I met people on, you know, films 20 years ago who have since become some of my closest friends, um, which is great. And you do, you pick, you know, you like a magpie, you just pick people up as you go along. 
Uh, and I think that just becomes part of part of the process and part of the joy of it. Coming back to this idea as well, you'd mentioned you you know making your own short films at the same time as working on productions for other people. Do you think it's important for anybody who wants to be in a creative industry to be doing their own stuff as much as possible? And also, how has that changed? So you mentioned when you were first begging and borrowing gear to get together for 16mm film and all mm. that, comparing that to the situation with technology now and the, the ways that people can get their stuff out in the world. I wonder if you've got any reflections on on how that's changed. Yeah, I mean, it has massively. I mean, I've been in the industry for 20 years or so. Um, and even in that time, the technology has changed fundamentally. The way that films have uh, changed uh, is huge, really. I mean, there are th- obviously there are things which, which remain the same. Um, the way we watch films has changed. The way we make films has changed. The way we distribute films has changed. And um, the gatekeeping has kind of, to some degree, has fallen away, which I think is is, is a brilliant thing. And it's um it's a it's a leveler playing field leveler a more level playing field than it was certainly when i started um i was fortunate i was privileged insofar as i knew people who i could go to to go hi i want to borrow a hundred grand's worth of camera kit for no money (laughs) but that was a privileged position and we were just very very lucky um but if we didn't have that there was no other option i mean you know we could arguably have shot it on high eight video but it would have looked like dog shit and what and and why why would why would we bother whereas now um you know your average mobile phone can shoot 4k video um and people are making uh feature films on a mobile phone which go into the cinema and they look amazing so so the tools with which you have to tell the story are much 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 more available Mm. whether that be a mobile phone whether that's a dslr whether that is you know a kind of the next step up from the dslr things like sort of the canon c100 or c300 which are all very very available cameras um and the great thing about the, the speed at which camera technology changes is cameras become doorstops within about three years so there's an awful lot of kit which is just sitting on shelves because people at the top end of the industry don't want it so that's enables people at the bottom of the industry who are just coming in whether that be short films or anything else to be able to access really 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 good equipment um for very 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 little money and i think that's brilliant i think one of the other things that's changed and one thing i always tell people is don't wait for permission for too long people have waited for permission to make a film to tell their story and that's you know you write a script and you send it to to the funding bodies you send it to you know creative england to the bfi to film london to whomever um and you wait for them to say yes or no oh yeah this is great we're going to give you x amount of money and if you don't get the money you don't make the film and i think well that if you want to make the film make the film great if you can you know absolutely apply for everything that you that you apply for everything you can and apply for everything you're eligible for mm. but don't rely on it you know they only have um a very small pot of money. They can only support a very small amount of filmmakers. Don't let them stop you from making the film that you want to make. And fine, you know, if you can't, you know, get five grand's worth of funding from from the BFI or from, you know, Film London, fine. Okay, so maybe you have to kind of um, roll back your ambition for how you're going to make the film. Um, that's, you know, that may well be true. But 
look at the film and think, okay, how do we make this? How do I, how do I get a group of like-minded people together for two days every weekend or whatever? And, you know, borrow a, a DSLR and, you know, and get someone who's got a, a Zoom recorder and a boom mic and whatever. Um, and just go and make the film and learn from it and get better. And each time you do it, it'll get better. Um, and you can do that now. And you couldn't do that when I was, you know, when I was 20, there simply wasn't the technology available to be able to do that. And that's a huge, and, and as a result, I mean, all you have to do now is look at TikTok, the talent on display on TikTok from a bunch of completely untrained 15 year olds is astonishing. Just the visual creativity that people have got because of the fact that they can shoot it on their phone. They can, you know, they can cut it on free editing software and do bits and pieces with it on their computer and upload it to the internet. They have completely and utterly bypassed the gatekeeping and the people who say yes or no. And that is brilliant. And it's also terrifying. <laughs> and it's specifically terrifying for the people who who rely on the old-fashioned system and who rely on the the um the notion that you can control um people's creativity. Um all of these people, all of these these um young people who are making incredible incredible content and putting it out on social media they're all you know they're going to do us all out of a job um in relatively quick time and good luck to them frankly so um yeah i mean it's it's the whole industry has changed massively um, and will continue to change um and that's one of the exciting things about it is you know i with a bit of luck and a following wind i will still be in a position where i can be making films in 20 30 years time um and you know and i have every intention of never retiring and just making films until i can't make films anymore or the industry doesn't want me to make films anymore which is probably what's going to happen because that's something i was told years ago is you don't retire from the film industry it retires you i think there's definitely truth in that um but yeah i think you know there's never there's never been a better time to make a film than right now and even one of the i made a short film year a few years ago 2012 i think Bearing in mind, you know, my last short film had a budget of 30 grand and we were on location for a week in Devon and we had rain machines and it was a period thing. We had period cars and there's an underwater stunt sequence <laughs> that we, we flew to Eastern Europe to shoot in a studio there. And it was bonkers. <laughs> it's like everything you can imagine. We just threw the kitchen sink at it. I made a film in 2012 with a bunch of 12-year-old kids because um, I was teaching at the time. Um, and they came up with this idea and we wrote this script. We wrote it in an afternoon. We filmed it in an afternoon and then it was finished. We filmed it on a Saturday and the film was completely finished by the Monday afternoon. And I think the entire budget for that film was about 50 quid because <laughs> we bought some um, dressing up uh, uniforms. It's basically, it's a thing with boy soldiers. It was, it's set in, in uh, Passchendaele um, during the first world war. And it's about, essentially it's a story about, the scandal of 14 year old children signing up and going to war which happened a lot um and this was an idea which which these kids came up with and we wrote the story as i say spent 50 quid making the film i shot it i had a friend of mine come along with a boom and a and a h4n zoom recorder and i you know and then i cut it and then we you know showed it to the kids a couple of weeks later and they oh this is great and then we showed it at the film festival which the um the the drama school where i was teaching had an annual film festival and then we put it in some festivals and it got picked up 
and was shown all over the world. It was picked up by the Imperial War Museum. It won the Best Film Award at the Limelight Film Awards in London, which is like a big short film um, industry event, beating films that cost 30 grand with big professional crews. And it was, you know, it was me and a friend and um, the five boys who came up with the idea who were also in it. And we shot it on a, yeah, we shot it on a 5D, you know. It's, it looks nice, but it's not going to, you know, it's not going to set the world on fire um, in terms of the technical um, mastery of it. But it's a really, really good story and it's a, a good story well told. And it's, you know, and I've made, I've made considerably more expensive films than that, which didn't do as well. So it's just, you know, just because you have um, a lot of money or a lot of budget or a, lot of, a really big shiny camera or whatever doesn't mean your film is going to be good. And just because of the fact that you don't have any of those things and you're shooting with your friends on a mobile phone doesn't mean your film is going to be bad. But if you don't make it, it's never going to be anything. And that's a really important thing. I think, you know, if you want to make films, make films. And each time you do it, you'll get better. Um, nobody, nobody is a genius who makes their first film and everybody goes, oh my God, this is stone cold genius. And everybody you hear that about, made a whole load of films before they made the film that everybody thinks was this overnight success. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if I had one bit of advice, it would be don't wait for permission. Just go and do it. If you're not making stuff, there's not stuff for people to see. So, you know, if, yeah. if you're calling yourself a songwriter but you don't write songs, no one's going to know that you write songs or if they're any yeah. good. And the same with anything else. Absolutely. How do you define yourself? If you are a filmmaker and you are not making films, then are you a filmmaker? Um, and, the, and I think one thing which has definitely been true in this industry, and it's probably true of a lot of other things, there's a lot of people who talk about it and they talk and talk and talk. Oh, I'm going to make this amazing thing. I'm writing this amazing script. I'm doing this incredible thing, but they never actually do it. They never see it through. And I think there's a, there's a lot of reasons behind that. And there's something that I was guilty of when I started, which was if you never finish anything, people can't criticize you for it mm. because there's always, there's always the opportunity to kind of go, well, it's not finished. Oh, well, we're still doing it. Oh, well, I'm in there. Whereas when you finish something, you put it out there. That's it. It's not yours anymore. And you have to just go, well, there it is. That's the thing. Hopefully people like it. Some people will, some people won't. Um, but it's really, really easy to never finish anything for fear of being shot down. And that's part of the process. And you're never going to get better at anything if you don't open up to other people and let them see what you're doing. There's no point in painting pictures and hanging them in your garage. There is no point in writing songs and playing them to yourself in your bedroom. There is no point in making films and never finishing them or you don't even have to put them in film festivals, stick them on YouTube, you know, whatever. Show anything, any of your creative endeavours need an audience. I think a creativity without an audience, I mean, it's great. I mean, I'm a musician in my bedroom and that's fine because I, I, that's something what I do for myself. I don't, you know, I, I, but I don't call myself a musician in that, in any kind of grand sense. And so I get a great deal of satisfaction from sitting around and playing guitar, which is how I, we originally kind of came to know each other. Um, but as a filmmaker, I, it's really, really important for me to keep making films and whether that's on a grand scale um, whether that's teaching filmmaking, whether that is helping other other filmmakers with their projects, you know, all of that is part of, that's what I am. It's what I do. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been doing that for a long time. And even now, 
been in the industry for 20 years, even though my mum's like, well, if it doesn't work out, what are you going to do? And it's like, well, uh, it kind of is working out. It's kind of fine, mum. <laughs> that, that you just mentioned is interesting to me, though. There's this this thing about um, that I struggle with sometimes, this idea of legitimacy. So, you yeah. know, you, you yeah, make... Yeah, you feel like an intruder, yeah. Yeah, you make stuff and, and it's all good and you've got an audience for it or whatever, but we still have this idea. Again, it's one of the way of that the, the industries have been in the past. So from a musician's point of view, if your stuff isn't being played on the BBC national radio, then, you know, it's, that's a level of legitimacy that you, can, you can't really argue with. And I guess in terms of filmmaking or... Or whatever you know, if you're directing episodes of Hollyoaks or Doctors and it's broadcast by terrestrial TV, then that's would seem like it's an element of legitimacy compared to putting your you know short films on YouTube. Now we all know that that's wrong, and it doesn't necessarily make the work any better wherever it goes. Is that something that you've encountered in your own head, or from the people like you mentioned your mum there, or have you just not cared? And it's the, the success of the thing is the thing itself, wherever it ends up. Um, I think one of the important things is knowing why you're making something mm. and knowing what, what your own, what, how you're going to judge your own piece of work. Um, if you're making something for this, just for the sake of making it brilliant, just go and make it. Um, if you're making something because you particularly want to make an impact on the festival circuit, that's a different, um, yardstick by which to judge your film. If you're making something as a calling card to get you to get you noticed as a director, if you're making something because you particularly want to work in a certain show, um, all of the you know, those are all perfectly reasonable things to do. And I think knowing what you're why you're doing something is part of the process. Um, and I think that's you know the you just have to kind of sometimes you have to take a step back from from, from particularly in career terms. Take a step back from what you're doing and go, okay, what's, why am I, and it comes back to what I said earlier, why am I saying yes to this job? Why am I saying yes to this particular opportunity? What am I getting out of this? I think any freelance self-employed person might have these sorts of issues. And again, the time that we're in at the moment is an interesting one because you, everyone has been led to sort of question, what is it that I'm doing and what am I doing for? And I guess really it comes down to, I ask quite often on this, what what is somebody's definition of success either in their career or in the things yeah. that they make? And it might not necessarily be the things that get the most um, the most acclaim or even the most audience. It might be something different. Absolutely. I mean, I've made stuff which has reached huge audiences, which I'm totally ambivalent about. Mm. And I've made other things which have reached a very small audience, which I'm hugely proud of. And that's fine, um, you know, because that's just the nature of the beast. Um, in terms of legitimacy, I think... You always, or certainly I always, and I know there's an awful lot of people who who fit into this category, you always feel a little bit like an imposter, like you're going to be found out. Um, because, you know, there are times when you're standing on set, when you look around and go, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you do, and it's just, a, it's just a blip in your confidence or just something has shaken your confidence. And you just, you know, at that point, you suddenly, when you break it down, you you, you break it down and go, oh no, I, re I really do know what I'm doing. And mm. th I'm making decisions without having to consciously think about those decisions just because they become automatic. But that's not the same as, as, as making it up as you go along. And yeah, I think, you know, legitimacy is, is a, a, a huge thing. Um, but I think it's something which you can't put too much weight on 
Um, because if you spend your entire life thinking you're not good enough or somehow you lucked your way into something or you shouldn't be there by any rights, that's, that's not a good position from which to be your best person, to be your best creative um, self. So sometimes you just have to go, yeah, great, I'm here. Let's just get on with it. Mm. Um, and some, you know, sometimes you, you'll find yourself. I've worked with people over the years who have clearly talked themselves into a position that's way beyond their experience and way beyond their their basic ability. And it's really interesting to see people in that position because sometimes they they absolutely just lean into it and do it incredibly well. And sometimes they just fall to pieces. Um, but you've got to be ambitious. You've got to kind of go, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. Um, there's one, <laughs> There was a project years ago, which was, oddly enough, it's it's kind of, it's come back round again. I did a load of films for Skype about 10 years ago. Now. And they did a thing called Say It With Skype, which was um, a series of group video called um, films where they, we would put a band together or we'd find a band and we'd shoot each member of the band in a different video window and put those together. So you effectively had the band playing on a, on a like you would do now with a Zoom call. But this is 10 years ago when, this, when the technology didn't quite support it. And we did a whole tranche of these with all kinds of really, really interesting people. And how we would shoot it was we built little room sets um, at three mils and we would record them. And it was all played live. But we would have uh, Harish Patel, who's my kind of sound guru, who's been doing sound with me for nearly 20 years now. He would record each part live as we played it and um, shot it. And then when we came to doing, so we'd start off with with drums and bass. We'd start off with drums, and then in the we would have the fold back for the bass player. We'd have the drum track, and then we'd record that later. And then we'd you know and add on and so on and so on until we'd shot the whole band. Mm. So they're playing live with each other, but not yep. with each other. And then when you put those together on the screen, it gives the appearance that they're sh- they're playing together live. We did tons of those and it was great fun. We did like a Christmas version and we did a Father's Day version and we did all kinds of stuff. We had Alice Cooper and all kinds of random people, which is brilliant fun. And then at one point they turned around to me and said, yeah, yeah, this is great. And this is all, this is all really good fun. We want to do it for real. I was like, okay. And they went, yeah, so what we want to do to prove that it works is we want to shoot a band playing over Skype in three different places. And originally they were like, oh, you know, maybe they could just be, you know, we'll all be in London and one of them can be in a studio and one can be in their bedroom and one can be in the garden shed, whatever. We go, oh, okay. And then we started talking going, well, if they're going to be somewhere else, then why don't they, why can't they be really somewhere else? And they went, okay. And then they came back and said, okay, so this is what we want to do. We want to have a band, um, which is a band called Scarlet Grey, who are now called Dear Boy, who are LA-based band. Um, and they wanted to have the lead singer in Los Angeles, um, the guitarist in New York, and the drummer and bass player in London, playing together over Skype live. And they just came to me and said, and this was, God, this must have been like, I don't know, middle of November, kind of, yeah, second, first, second week in November in 2011, I think. And said, okay, so this is what we want to do. And we want to do it on the, 20th of December. Hmm. Can you do it? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We can do that. Of course we can do that. It's fine. We can do that. <laughs> and as soon as I kind of had that conversation, I kind of put the phone down, then immediately phoned Harish 
who's my sound guy, and went, shit, how are we going to do this? Um, because, we, you know, we we played around with the notion of how it was going to work, but we never really dug into the technicalities of it. But I knew it could be done. We had a really modest budget. And then it was a case of, okay, how do we do this with this much money in, in three weeks? And how do we make it work? And it was absolutely skin of the teeth <laughs> stuff. Um, and we ended up with, yeah, we ended up with um, the lead singer and guitarist playing at Universal Studios uh, theme park in LA. And we had this really swanky loft apartment in New York. And then we had the bass player and the drummer on the top floor of the South Bank Centre in London, looking out over the, the uh, London Eye. And we had this incredibly complicated system of, you know, the whole thing kind of set up and all of these, you know, sort of webcams. And we'd had to hack into webcams to use better cameras. and uh-huh. all, So we'd hacked an awful lot of stuff. And we had the whole thing synced via a satellite for triggering Pro Tools sessions. So the click tracks were all wow. sunk. It's all of this kind of crazy stuff. And none of it worked. Um, <laughs> so what we ended up doing is we realized that Apple clocks are synchronized centrally. So we ended up synchronizing it literally with a countdown on an Apple on an Apple clock on a, on an iPad on a laptop, and did it, and it worked. But it only worked, I think, on the third time of asking. Bearing in mind there's an eight-hour time difference as well, <laughs> and you know, the, so it was this massive, massive thing. And um, and they went, "Can you do this?" And we went, "Yeah, yeah, we can do that." And we did, and it was an amazing, amazing feeling that we managed to pull it off. But had I kind of at the beginning of that conversation gone, well, no, I'm not sure, man. I don't know. Then we never would have done it, which would have been a great shame. So sometimes I just think you have to kind of, you know, you have to be confident in your ability to um, adapt, to learn fast, to know the right questions to ask and to just do it. Mm. And sometimes, sometimes a glorious failure is better than never doing it at all. Basically. Yeah. Um, You know, it's better to find out you can't do it through trying, I guess, than just sort of. God, absolutely, because it's so it's very easy to assume you can't do something. Oh, I can never do that because, and this is and it's so true with creativity. Oh, I can never write a script because you know because I've never done it. Oh, I can never make a film. Oh, I can never do this mm. until you try. You don't know. You know, there's loads of people in their forties, fifties, sixties who have come to writing from you know they've done had a whole career doing something else. And they've come to writing very late in their career and they've smashed it and done incredibly well. And, you know, and uh, then established themselves as writers in, you know, much later into their career. You don't need to start when you're 15. You don't need to go to university. <laughs> Excuse me. You don't need to, again, you don't need permission. You don't, you know, you just have to think, yeah, just do it. And it's, it comes back to that question you were asking earlier about the technology. The technology is there basically and sometimes you just have to go fuck it <laughs> it's just gonna give it <laughs> um yeah yeah so you know which is which is great um just sort of finally then i wonder if you could sum up for me because people listening would be interested to know i think you've worked as a writer and a producer and a director yeah do you have a preference between those and and what are the differences and and have you had projects where you've done two or three of them on the same thing is that possible how does that work um it does uh yeah i've i've had projects when i've done all of those things um and i'm something of a control freak <laughs> so um i yeah that is it kind of it that suits my personality um 
I don't know if there's I don't know if I specifically enjoy one more than the other. I like the process of making films. I like every part of the process of it. You get some directors who are like, oh, I love shooting, but I don't like prep. Or, oh, I love being in post, but I don't like shooting. I really enjoy all of it. And um, I don't know what that says about me. Um, but I love producing. I love working with other directors. I, you know, I produce for myself. I started for producing for myself because there wasn't anybody else who was going to do it. Mm. And there wasn't anybody else who certainly knew more than I did, which sounds arrogant, but it's not. It was just there was nobody else around. Um, so I was like, well, I might as well do it myself and then became quite good at it and then got to the stage where I was being employed specifically as a producer. Um, but it's the same as any of these things. When it's good, it's great, either as a producer or as a writer or as a director, individually or together. And when it's not, it's awful. Um, the highest paid job I think I've ever had was producing. And I hated every minute of it in this that one particular job. It was awful. Um, and I and I learned a very big lesson from that. Um, and that was f- fairly recently anyway, in the last few years. And um, I've produced other things which have been, you know, we've had no money and, and it's been a real struggle. And they've been brilliant, absolutely brilliant experiences. So I can't, I can't say for definite that there's one thing I particularly prefer. Um, I think I'm probably happiest. Generally, I'm happiest when I'm on set, as a rule. Um, if I'm on set directing something that I've written, that's an amazing place to be. Because you're taking something. <clears throat> there's a, it's a very different skill to read somebody else's script and formulate that into pictures in your head and then communicate those pictures to other people to take them from your head to a TV screen, which is fundamentally what a director does. Um, It's a very different skill to do that with someone else's script. Um, And it's a different experience. It's no better or worse. It's just different. And I really, really enjoy the process of doing that. But there is something about coming up with an idea, developing that idea, into a script with other people and then taking that onto a film set, realising that into a physical thing, seeing it all the way through and then sitting in a cinema and watching it. There was something hugely satisfying about sitting in a cinema with 300 people looking at the screening going, yeah, we did that. That's cool. That's, that you know, that's such an amazing feeling. And... It's just different. I mean, it's, you know, the work, great writing is great writing, whether it's, you know, wherever it's come from. And it's a privilege to direct great writing. And I'm not suggesting my writing is great, but I understand my writing. So, and I've, you know, I, I, everything that I've written that I've directed has been in a relatively small um, forum. It's been, you know, it's been shorts and, and short form stuff. I'm not in a position yet. Hopefully, touch wood, I will be at some point. I'm not in a position yet where people are going to go, yeah, write this thing and then we'll go and make it. And, you know, it'll be a six part drama or a two hour film or whatever, because obviously that's, you know, that's very much the next step, really, for me. Um, but at the same time, you know, if somebody hires me to direct on a great piece of writing, that's a, that's a huge privilege and a great place to be. If someone comes to me with a script and says, I want you to produce this, or I find a script, and I go, yeah, I want, to, I want to produce this and I'm going to find a great director for it and I'm going to find a great team for it. That's hugely satisfying. Um, 
so yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, there's, 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 I don't have one thing which I want to, I want to do all of them. I'm massively greedy. I want to do all of them. <laughs> and that's, you know, the, the one thing I've always thought, and I've said this a lot to people who've asked over the years is, um, I make films for a living, films and TV. I make films and TV for a hobby. I teach film and TV to kids and young people and adults, in fact. And when I'm not doing that, more often than not, I am watching film and TV. It, it, it takes up a huge amount of my life, a huge amount of my life. And I'm very fortunate in that I get to earn a living doing that and I get to play around in that sandpit. Um, and, you know, and I will never take that for granted. Um, it's come a, a cost. And there are things which I would do differently if I kind of had this, the opportunity again. But it's such a great, it's such a privilege to be able to do that. So if if I never, if I, you know, and I love ADing as well as an assistant director, I brilliant, brilliant time as an AD. So if, if you know, it so happened that I was only ever able to do one thing for the rest of my career, that's fine. That's, you know, yeah, I, I still want to direct. I still want to write. I still want to produce. I still want to AD. But if something happened, they said, well, you can't do any of those things anymore. You can only do one. You've got to pick one. Pick a team. You go, okay. Yeah, fine. But I, that would still, I would still be very happy and very satisfied doing that because it's great. And it beats getting a real job by, you know, a considerable margin. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's great. Um, tell us where people could catch up with you and see some of your, or find out about some of the projects that you've worked on or are working on. Um, you can go and be very nosy about me on my website, which is uh, amycoop.co.uk, and you'll find various things on there. And um, some of my short films are on there, and some of them aren't because they're still on the festival circuit, but they will probably appear on there at some point. Um, you can always follow me on Twitter, which is the Amy Coop. Um, wouldn't necessarily advise it at the minute because Twitter's a very ugly place right now. Mm. <laughs> um, but yeah, those are the two. Those are the two main places, really. Perfect. Um, yeah, I I tend not to. <laughs> I try not to haunt social media too much because it's just not good for the soul. Yeah, <laughs> I'd agree. Certainly at the moment. Okay, Amy, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for taking <laughs> the time to do that. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. See you next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers podcast. If you could subscribe to the podcast, share it, like it, comment on it, review it, tell all your friends about it, all of those things would be fantastic because the more that people do that, the more that new people get a chance to hear the podcast, join the community and enjoy the content that we're putting out. You can find me at robertlanemusic.co.uk and I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Robert Lane Music. Please get in touch, let me know if you're enjoying the programmes and who you think I should talk to in the future. Thank you, until next time, goodbye. <laughs>